Hello everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni and this is the FDI podcast. The Odebrecht corruption scandal is not abating. In fact, it is growing day by day throughout Latin America. Brazilian construction company Odebrecht has emerged as the ringmaster of a sophisticated corruption network spanning Brazil and another 11 countries in Latin America and Africa. The U.S. Department of Justice estimated that the company paid as much as $788 million in bribes to legally secure projects in these countries and generating ill-gotten profits of about $3.34 billion. Investigators are now at work in most of these countries to hold accountable Odebrecht's accomplices. The early results of these investigations are sending shockwaves through the continent and questioning the very continuity of many administration and reform programs. In Peru, serving President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who was elected on an anti-corruption platform in 2016, is facing monthly risk of impeachment as new evidence linking him to illicit payments processed by Odebrecht emerged. In Ecuador, Jorge Glass, vice president and close ally of former President Rafael Correa, has been sentenced to six years in jail for his dealings with the company. The president of Colombia and Nobel Prize winner Juan Manuel Santos acknowledged that his 2010 presidential campaign received illicit funds from Odebrecht, and so did Panama's president Juan Carlos Varela, although both denied any wrongdoing. At the same time, dozens of businessmen, middlemen and public officials are being jailed or investigated. Not even to mention Brazil, where the so-called Operation Lava Jato has decimated the political and business elites in the past three years. But how bad is this all for Latin America as an investment destination? How can the region recover its appeal for foreign investment amid these circumstances? I'm here in our studio in London with two guests that will help us understand better the reach of the Odebrecht scandal and what it means for the whole region. Catherine Ochtetler, Professor of International Development at the London School of Economics, and Jimena Blanco, Head of America's Politics Research, a global risk and strategic consulting firm, Veris Marplecroft. Thank you both for being on the show. Jimena, let me start with you. So um, how bad is this all for Latin America? Should foreign investors steer clear of the region until the whole uh, scandal abates? Well, there is no question that the Odebrecht scandal and Lava Chateau more generally is uh, is of a massive scale, and it's probably the largest corruption scandal um, that we know of anywhere in the world. Uh, exposure to corruption is not new for any business going into Latin America. The difference is this has really shown how uh, systematic, how endemic, and how institutionalized uh, it is in in many countries in the region, but particularly so far within within Brazil. Uh, I guess the question for any investor looking at the region is, um, how do I understand my exposure to corruption, which can vary not just by country, but within industry and within areas within different countries? So geographically, where you're working and what industry you're looking to invest in can vary. Um, for any investor that's looking at Brazil in particular, uh, the question is, uh, if I'm purchasing an asset in Brazil or entering a contract with a partner, how exposed could I be to association with Lava Chato or with corruption in general? But more broadly, it's raised a lot of questions about the regulatory systems, corporate governance, um, law enforcement in the region. And I think it's fair to say that the response has been very varied. 
Right, right. Uh, before getting to the the, the response uh, to, to to how these different countries respond in different way, also Catherine, you studied uh, the figures that were disclosed by the U.S. Uh, uh, Department of Justice about the the, the the impact of the of Odebrecht leach money and how different country this money. Uh, led to very different results in different countries, something that you call the, the bribe uh, multiplier. So do you want to give us some more insights on, uh, into your research and uh, what does this research tell us about uh, these countries and uh, this, this whole issue? Sure. The bribe multiplier is the idea that for a certain amount of bribe paid, a company gets a certain amount of contracts. And it turns out, using the Department of Justice information, that that actually varies a lot from country to country. And I first noticed this because when the Department of Justice report came out, my friends on Twitter from different Latin American countries were talking about. So my Dominican friends would say, oh, Odebrecht got almost nothing for the bribes that they paid in the Dominican Republic because the number there is about $2 in bribes. For two dollars in contracts for every one dollar in bribes, and then my Argentinian friend said, "Oh, but they got eight dollars in contracts for every dollar they paid in bribes." And Argentina and the Dominican Republic are really the top and bottom of those rates. But what it tells us is that it wasn't that Odebrecht was paying some set percentage of its contracts, but that this probably was being negotiated in country by country, Mm -hmm. contract by contract. Um, I did look and see that there's no relationship between the bribe multiplier and where countries stand, for example, on the Transparency International Corruption Perception Indexes. So some very low perception countries had high bribe multipliers, and some of them had low ones. And so um, it really doesn't appear to relate to kind of levels of corruption overall. I did note that in Argentina – where the bribe multiplier was so high, there were a comparatively small number of projects of quite large value, mostly gas pipelines and things like that, whereas in the Dominican Republic, you had a much larger number of smaller projects, many of them roads, a thermoelectric da- uh, uh, power plant, and that um, – it, so it might be that there's some relationship between numbers of projects, sizes of projects, but I think the big takeaway is that um, – Bribes don't lead in any very straightforward way to amounts of contracts. And there's a lot of room that politicians appear to have for negotiating the actual bribe that they get for a particular project. So in a way, this sort of, I mean, we we can say the Argentinian politicians were very in a way, shrewd in making the most of this situation, as opposed to the Dominican politicians where they, they got Little money. No, it's the I opposite, may. actually. Oh, it's the, the Argentines that were uh, that that gave away lots of contracts for rather small bribes, and the Dominicans who were apparently quite shrewd. But the other thing to keep in mind is that everybody, all the news discussions about these loans, are using the Department of Justice numbers. Right. And it's increasingly clear that the these Department of Justice numbers that are being used by everybody are not complete. So when I look in contrast at the amounts of contracts between Odebrecht and in Argentina and Odebrecht in the Dominican Republic that were financed by the Brazilian National Development Bank, there's substantially more in contracts awarded by Argentina to Odebrecht in those years than appears in the Department of Justice numbers. So I think that these numbers that everybody uses, $788 million in bribes paid, the 
3.3 billion in contracts that you referenced, these are almost certainly very low compared to what I think is a much larger Just, uh, scale. So this, I guess, uh, this is a bigger question mark. I mean, are we in front of just the tip of the iceberg? Or should we assume that uh, Odebrecht uh, and the other companies involved in the Lavajato uh, scandal were the sort of the only villains out there? I think it really depends on how far the judiciaries in the various countries are willing to go. Um, I think theoretically this is most likely the tip of the iceberg. And we won't really understand how far the, the, the scandal or the schemes really went in every individual country unless you have a combination of political and judicial will to investigate properly. So if we take, you know, different examples across the region, the response has been very varied. In some countries, say Venezuela, there's been almost no response. It's been ignored. In countries like Argentina, some investigations have started, but they're going at snail pace. And in countries like uh, Peru, or Colombia or Ecuador, we see some green shoots of the judiciary moving uh, much faster than in the others. So it really will depend on the country and um, also who were the politicians involved. I think there's a greater tendency to investigate um, when politicians are out of office, which I think that's the exception in Brazil. And that's why the impact in Brazil may be greater in terms of long-term structural improvements to transparency because powerful individuals, both from an economic and political perspective, were investigated while they remained powerful, whereas in many other countries, individuals don't get investigated until they leave office. Right, right, right. And now... I was just going to say the other thing we know from the Brazilian investigations, which I agree have gone by far the furthest, is that Odebrecht is not the only company out there paying these kinds of bribes. So OAS and other Brazilian construction companies have also been implicated in the Lava Jato scheme. Other companies that are not in the construction business have been as well. And so that's another reason to think that the, the these numbers in the Department of Justice, which are only Odebrecht, are much smaller than the fuller picture of corruption in in contracts. Yeah, yeah. And if we look how these, uh, these different countries react in different ways to, um, to this whole issue, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it, for, for me, it's. Yeah, how can, it, for example, there are, there are presidents like uh, Pedro Paolo Kusiski or Juan Carlos Varela, they were elected on this, uh, this platform, uh, championing a crackdown on corruption, uh, championing reforms to make uh, public bidding and public tendering more transparent and more clear and clearer. Um, but now they are directly involved, uh, allegedly, we, we don't know, we don't know whether, where, where the truth really lies, but allegedly they are directly involved in the, in the they, they also took money from other dress. So um, uh, what, what is the credibility of uh, the institutions and governments at the very highest level, level in uh, some of these countries and the credibility of the anti-corruption reforms that they, 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 they set in motion? Often the problem I find with uh, anti-corruption legal frameworks is not in the legal framework itself, but rather in the way in which it's enforced. Many times the watchdog agencies don't have the resources, uh, financial or in terms of human capital, they don't have enough individuals to undertake the investigations. Sometimes they don't have the real independence that they would need to investigate. I think more than the question about what does it tell us about the governments, if we look at Latin American voters, 
uh, the the trust in government is not historically high. People are, and I think this will be the greatest impact. People will have a greater tendency to follow candidates who come from an anti-establishment, anti-corruption platform, who come from outside politics because they're not tainted by the idea that being part of the traditional political system implies that in one way or another you may be involved in illicit or at least unethical acts. Right, and so... Um this is interesting because there is a new political cycle around the corner for 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 many countries. Uh, there, there are elections in Chile. Uh, there there are elections in uh, Mexico next year. And actually, there is a very interesting candidate on a, for my uh, for my in my opinion in uh, Mexico, the governor of the New Leon uh, state, the uh, so-called Bronco, uh, who is a typical sort of anti-establishment uh, uh, candidate. So, do you think that? This this uh, this can can prompt and trigger a new wave of uh, populism, uh, uh, anti-establishment populism uh, in uh, in the region. Well, I think you certainly see the you know that the possibility of that. I mean, Brazil is another case where that's really clear with Bolsonaro, who's coming in second in most of the public opinion polls, very much an anti-establishment anti-establishment character, much in the Trumpian lines, really. And he's been polling quite well in the first rounds, although so far in Brazil's second rounds, he doesn't manage to poll more people to him. So it's hard to say how high the base of support is for those kinds of candidates. But I think we've seen this in lots of Latin American political cycles. Uh, you know, People are unhappy, people are not doing well, and then they organize themselves to throw the bums out. And I think an interesting point on what you're saying about Brazil is also this idea of public fatigue. How far can the Brazilian population continue? If you think about it, by the time we have a new president, they will have spent an entire presidential term uh, when their life, their political and economic life has effectively been dominated by a corruption scandal. And it has decimated the political class. But what do voters have left? Who will they go for? And many times when I talk to people in Brazil, you get this sense of, you know, let's just go for the least bad, the person who will keep us a bit more stable. We know this has been going on for decades. We want it to clean. But if we have to destroy our economy and, and our political system in order to clean it completely, it might just be going a step too far. Right, right. It might be even too painful a step too far, as you say. So, uh, I mean, if we if we if we if we go right at the the, the, the core of the issue, why why was this happening? Um, you mentioned Jimena already. Uh, there is problem with watchdogs, uh, not only with rules, but also also the way the rules are enforced. But why was Odebrecht and uh, other companies? Uh, using systematically corruption and uh, and uh, illicit money to secure projects. Was this like the only way they could get uh, projects? Well, I think everybody wants to know the answer to that question. <laughs> but, I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that Odebrecht is not an incompetent company. Correct. Odebrecht a is a company that has a long history, that has a lot of competences, that probably will go on being important in the global building of infrastructure just because it is a company that can and is willing to build things like hydroelectric dams and and the countries around the region in Latin America and other places are likely to go on drawing for it, drawing on it for those reasons. And 
you know, can Odebrecht win contracts cleanly? Well, that's an interesting question. And part of it depends on whether or not other companies have also been paying all these same kinds of bribes. And who else would be out there? Uh, you know, there's a transmission auction, an auction to build transmission uh, lines that's about to be put out in Brazil. And the statement is that they're expecting a lot of Chinese and Indian companies to move in to possibly build those. And so I think we need to think kind of widely about who is it that is even part of these biddings, part of the competition. Um, And I think Odebrecht didn't get these contracts only by paying bribes. It got the contracts also because it could build projects. But I think part of the answer as well is culture. And if we look at the testimonies of Emilio and Marcelo Odebrecht, the father and and son in charge of the company during this period, uh, it was very telling. You know, they said, this is how it's always been done. This is how you operate in these countries. A lot of the time, and I think this is very interesting for an investor looking to go into Brazil or into any other country in Latin America, traditional due diligence when you're acquiring an asset is no longer enough. You can go through the paper trail. You can go through the, you know, the different uh, legal obligations. But sometimes it's more important to maybe interview mid and low ranking managers and get an understanding of what is the corporate culture regarding ethics and good governance, because that might tell you a lot more about your risk exposure than the official documentation. So if you sit down with a mid-level manager who says, of course I take Mayor X golfing every single weekend and give him a Caribbean cruise holiday once a year because that's how business is done here, that should be a quadruple red flag that you might not pick up by just looking at legal documentation. Correct. So let me be a bit provocative here. So do you think that over the years... Uh, corruption, or at least like this, this overall system of uh, weak institution, weak rules, weak watchdogs, has been a, a deterrent to foreign investment, or has been a, an, a sort of an extra appeal to the eyes of foreign investors. I think the answer depends on the company that is looking. Uh, so, if I look from the perspective of some of my clients. This is a a significant concern and they will take significant measures and invest a lot of money in trying to reduce the risk exposure. Um, Hopefully that would be how most companies in the world operate. It's not necessarily how all companies in the world operate. I don't think it's a a deterrent. It might be for some companies. They might find the threshold too high and, and they can't go in. But I think, you know, Companies, there are plenty of companies operating in Latin America in a responsible way um, in different sectors. And it's it's just, I think, one added area to keep an eye on, but not necessarily something to write the region off for. And I think it's important to keep in mind, I think you've made this point several times, that it really does depend also on the sector. So a lot of these Odebrecht scandals are in very large-scale, publicly procured projects but there's lots of investment in foreign investment in Latin America that's not in either of those categories. And so even so, you know, a large hydroelectric dam, I think, is handled very differently than, say, a, a small wind plant, wind power right. plant, which yeah. is a much smaller plant built by a very different set of actors, again, government procurement, or then other kinds of foreign investment opportunities that are not government procurement at all, 
or may involve other kinds of long-term commitments to stay in the country. You can imagine that there that different sectors would have very different profiles in terms of how much how many bribes are paid to whom if they're required at all to be part of it. And I'm sure that must be part of the kind of advising that you do for firms. And Catherine, I, as far as I understand, you also focused on the quality of the project that were awarded through this this uh, this uh, more uh, kind of unclear and less transparent ways. And you have argued that some of these projects, they were the least uh, optimal from from a more holistic perspective, like like taking into account like the social perspective, economic perspective, you argue that some of these projects that were secured or they were won, they were awarded through corruption were not the optical the optimal outcome and the optimal allocation for that kind of money, right? Well I think that's certainly a question that many people in these countries are asking. So if you look at some of Odebrecht's projects in Peru, for example, one of the things they were doing was building large hydroelectric dams in the Amazon and other protected natural areas or unprotected natural areas. And there are many local citizens that have been very much against those projects. And one of the arguments that has often been made in response is that, well, you're expressing local interests and local costs. But this is a project that really has national benefits. And so even if it does destroy an ecosystem locally, citizens should accept that because it's in the national interest. But that's going to be an argument that I think is much harder to make now that it's so clear that there was often a personal private interest in having these projects done. Did that hydroelectric dam get built in Peru just because it was the right thing to build, or did it get built because some politician who was influential in letting it go forward was taking a bribe? And whether that's true or not, I think that's very much going to be part of the political arguments about these projects, that they're in fact not in the national interest in the way that many people claim that they were. And as civil society in Latin America becomes stronger, especially where you know many of the countries we're talking about, they've been democratic countries for about three decades. And the civil, civil society movements are strengthening and growing. Voters are asking themselves, if this money was paid into corruption, how has this affected the economy of the country overall? How many jobs could we not create or how many boom and bust cycles did we have because we increased the fiscal deficit to pay for a bribe to a, a particular company that would then give kickbacks to a political campaign? How many schools could have been built with that money? Hospitals. Uh, law enforcement improvements, things that people actually worry about day in and day out. Insecurity is a huge concern. Is my government now paying a bribe to a multinational to build something that we don't need or might not be of the right quality instead of training the police officers that should be protecting my home? And so I think, you know, in terms of is this the tip of the iceberg, going back to the beginning, I think a lot of that forcing authorities to dig deeper will come from civil society and from voters themselves. And also like an overall push to, to understand better where all this money eventually uh, disappeared, right? I mean, obviously with the, the, the channel through which they, they launder this money, this is also a very interesting uh, uh, topic of investigation that hasn't been uh, addressed uh, yet. No, I mean, in many cases we're talking about economies that are uh, have a significant cash part to the economy. This 
aids things in the sense that you can transport cash in suitcases and, you know, the trunk of cars and etc. But there's a limit to how much. And if we think we look at how much Odebrecht may have paid in bribes overall, but just that one company, not Lava Jato as a whole, we're talking two and a half billion dollars. So there's only so much of that money that can be physically carried across economies and across borders. So there's, I think, a lot of other sectors and, uh, you know, institutions that will have or that are exposed to more investigations. All right. I would say like, I would say a very last point. Uh, how can governments across the region really turn uh, this uh, this uh, scandal, this crisis into an opportunity to reform their institutions, reform their rules, uh, reform their processes and uh, set the ground for a better uh, business and investment environment? Well, I think pretty clearly one of the pieces that really matters is whether or not there's an independent judiciary that has the power and resources and capability to actually do the investigation, not just the investigation of the past corruption, but also to make it very clear to actors going forward that future instances of corruption will also face those kinds of of um, investigations. And, you know, you may have gotten yourself $13 million for a while, but you'll be paying that back and you'll be in jail. And that's a pretty powerful kind of argument. And you don't build powerful independent judiciaries overnight. But just to take one example out of the Lava Jato investigations, one of the things that really made a difference in those investigations is that Brazil, for the first time um, in the last couple of years, has been doing uh, plea bargains. So that's an interesting thing, wasn't part of the legal system at all, began to do plea bargains, and plea bargains are completely at the root of what they're learning about all of these corruption scandals, because in order to stay out of jail or to have reduced jail time, people then will rat out and provide information about all kinds of things. So I think there are some concrete techniques that one can use to, or tools one can use to try to improve the judicial judicial systems, but I would really put a lot of priority there. I think, you know, following on from that point, there hasn't been a single company fined on Brazil's anti-corruption legislation in Lava Jato. Everything stems from the plea bargain agreements. And then you have countries like Argentina trying to follow suit, making similar legal changes. Um, also making changes that make corporate actors legally responsible, not just the corporation, but also individuals within the corporation. This is something that Argentina has done. Uh, Peru, for example, making individual ministers criminally liable. So it's not just uh, the ministry X signed this contract, but that particular minister or secretary or undersecretary will be prosecuted personally for putting that signature on, on that contract. And I think, you know, the opportunity is already here. If we flip the question, what would happen if they don't continue with the investigations? And the answer would be, well, the world already knows this is out there. If you don't investigate it, the message you're sending to investors is, we are corrupt and we're not going to do anything about it. So I don't think there's a, that, that, that's not an option. You know, governments and the judiciaries have to investigate because this has already come to the surface. And if they do nothing, that is going to deter investors. Right. So 
do you believe that more countries will follow in the footsteps of uh, Brazil or Peru or Ecuador uh, in the perspective of uh, increasing the scrutiny uh, of uh, serving uh, uh, politicians and serving government? Cabinet, also, cabinet ministers, if not, if not even presidents? Not every country will do it, and not every country will do it at the same pace. But I think, you know, over time, we need to look at this as a probably a, you know, two decade structural change, at least. It's not going to happen overnight. But I think the, the seeds have been sown. But I, I do think, too, that a lot of these things go in a package. So if you look at the two countries that show up on the Department of Justice list that have essentially done the very least, they're Venezuela and Angola. And both of those countries have really just wrapped up all of this in complete mystery and obscurity. But they're also two very, very difficult countries in which to do business in a whole lot of ways. So I think that taking these kinds of decisions not to address the the corruption that everybody knows exists is, I agree, going to send a very strong signal that you're in that group. And I don't think that's where that's not a very successful economic position to be in. All right. Well, Catherine, Jimena, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thanks, everybody, for listening and for tuning in. You can follow the FDI podcast on our website, fdiintelligence.com slash podcast, or on any major podcast platform, Acast or iTunes. Thanks, everybody. we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.